Welcome to the latest edition of Changing Waters. This is Brad Warren, co-host of the podcast, produced in cooperation with the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Today's episode is focused on a species critical to marine biodiversity and many other species, kelp. Our deputy director at the National Fisheries Conservation Center is Julia Sanders, who today will interview Tom Mumford, a well-respected expert in coastal resilience and kelp, who spent over 40 years studying this species. Kelp is what is known as a foundational species, and in the last five years, it has become apparent that not only is it in serious trouble, its loss is resulting in a cascade of negative effects that domino up through the food chain. Tom will discuss the myriad uses and benefits of kelp, including its role in carbon sequestration and in mitigating ocean acidification. He'll also look at the uh, current crisis in the loss of kelp, and uh, particularly in parts of the Pacific Northwest here, and efforts uh, to conserve and restore the species. We're excited to be able to offer you this compelling look at an essential piece of the marine ecosystem Here's Julia Sanders. On other episodes of this show, we've heard about how changing ocean conditions can have unexpected consequences that can run all the way up the food chain and lead to some devastating losses. Kelp is an incredibly important piece of marine ecosystems and biodiversity, and it's been under threat for some time. For that reason, I'm excited to be here with Tom Mumford to learn more about what's going on with kelp. I can't think of anyone that's better equipped to teach us about that than him. Uh, known in the Pacific Northwest as a kelp guru, he has a truly impressive background. Starting over 40 years ago at the Washington Department of Natural Resources, he researched the cultivation of seaweeds and developed and managed programs for the management and inventory of seaweeds and seagrasses on state-owned aquatic lands. He's taught in various universities and consulted overseas in seaweed aquaculture and since his retirement in 2011, he's been focusing on researching marine algal biodiversity, the role of kelp in marine ecosystems, kelp restoration, and on teaching. He was a lead biologist for an ARPA-E project to grow kelp for biomass, is currently developing a kelp recovery plan for NOAA, as well as acting in an advisory role on a project using kelp to mitigate for ocean acidification. Truly an impressive background. Uh, thanks for being here with us today, Tom. Glad to be here. That sounded pretty impressive too. Wow. <laughs> when you think back about it. Absolutely. A ton of work there and a huge amount of knowledge to tap. I'm really excited. So what can you tell us about the endless benefits of kelp? Is everybody clear about what kelp is? Is that a fair question? Uh, let's assume not. Let's go ahead and, and discuss that first. Thank you. Yeah, I just thought it might be everybody throws the word around quite a bit. Um, basically, kelp are a large seaweed that belongs to a group of seaweeds that are called brown algae. And they're really not related to green algae or land plants or red algae in any way. Um, they're a whole separate group. And kelp is a subset of these brown algae that are often very large, can get up to 100 feet or more in size. So they're a particular group of about 100 different kinds in the world. 
Uh, we've got 23 of them here in the state of Washington where I live. So that's just kind of a little bit of background of kind of what they are. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about how they work here as we go along. And do all of those types of algae fall under the category of macroalgae? They're all, yes, they're what we would call macroalgae, meaning big algae that you can see, as opposed to, say, microalgae, which are more like plankton, that you, you know, would have to use a microscope to see. Okay, great. And what kind of benefits does kelp provide? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> it's my favorite. I, I kind of break it into a bunch of different categories, or a bunch, but let's, let's make two to be exact, and then we can kind of work down through those. Um, their role and importance in the ecosystem is where I usually start off with. And there's two components to that ecosystem benefit, if you will. One is that they're large plants. And so they make habitat. They're what they call biogenic habitat. So critters can live in, around, uh, inside of these uh, kelp plants. The kelp plants often form big masses, so they call them kelp forests or kelp beds. So there's a lot of kelp. They're all jammed in together. And so this makes this uh, what they call um, biogenic habitat. Foundation species is another fancy term for this. So there's this habitat component, and that's turning out to be really important. The second part of the picture is that they not only make habitat, but they are a plant in the sense that they take up, oxy uh, take up uh, CO2, give off oxygen, they photosynthesize. They're, they're plants in the, in the, that they photosynthesize. And consequently, they fix carbon, which we'll talk more about here in a bit, and they produce an enormous amount of biomass. Uh, they grow extraordinarily rapidly. And so they make all these huge plants that then either fall apart and go into the food web that way, or they're eaten just as they are, or it turns out that they are constantly exuding um, material from them. They leak, if you will, and that's important. So the primary productivity aspect of these plants in the ecosystem is incredibly important. And so where the kelp goes and who eats it and where that kelp carbon, what I call kelp carbon, where that ends up turns out to be a really important part of this. So there's the habitat part, and then there is the uh, food web support, right? Um, we can then say, oh, well, these plants can take up carbon dioxide out of the water. And so all of a sudden you say, well, wait a minute, how does this deal with ocean certification? And so they, they play a role in uh, possibly mitigation for ocean certification. Um, we can talk more about this, but they, the plants themselves take up the carbon, and then does it get sequestered? Is it blue carbon? Um, I've been involved in this effort because it grows so quickly and can grow a lot of it. Using it for biomass, can you take that carbon once it's made into kelp and then turn it back into fuels? And then you can also use it for aquaculture, for food, and these sorts of things. And I understand there's some medical benefits as well. Um, alginate is often used in uh, burn victims, I understand. So, yeah. So there's the, then, then there's the whole aspect of humans. So what I've talked about so far really is sort of the ecosystem part of kelp 
habitat, carbon dioxide, these sorts of things. And then there's that whole world of the direct uses of kelp, what do humans do with it. And that has a long and interesting history. Um, it started in, in a lot of the, um, the uses of kelp actually started in places like in Asia where it's been used as a food for centuries, for millennia. Um, and so you go to places like Japan where they have wakame and kombu, and those are both kinds of kelp that are highly regarded. You go to China, it's uh, been used in, in, in Chinese cuisine for a long time. So there's that direct human use for food. Then you get into the things of what else is in the kelp, and you mentioned allergenic acid. So much like the fact that when you make a, a, a tree, the wood in it is made of cellulose, and that cellulose can be used for making paper and diapers and everything else under the sun. The cell walls in kelp contain, basically it's a polysaccharide, kind of like cellulose, but it's called algenic acid. And instead of being stiff and hard, it's a goop, it's a gel. And it can be used in a variety of different kinds of things. Um, one of which you said was, was wound dressing. Um, that's one of the interesting things it can be used as. Um, but the list goes on and on and on. Many foods, they use it as a stabilizer or a gelling thing in foods, all kinds of food. Um, it can be um, one that I always talk about that's really strange is printing, high-speed printing, the ink is on these rollers that go really fast and they roll the ink onto the paper. They use algenic acid in it to gel the ink so it doesn't sling off the presses. Wow. You couldn't do high-speed presses without kelp. <laughs> it's, it's, it's these sort of funny things like that. The wound dressing is really interesting because, again, when you dry it, it can be made as, into a film on the surface of a Band-Aid, which then doesn't adhere to or can be peeled off of a wound easily. It promotes the healing, and it also doesn't, it, it can be removed. It's like a non-stick Band-Aid, basically. They've also been using it to make a, uh, um, what they call a scaffolding. You can gel it and then grow cells on it when you want to make artificial, um, like an ear or a nose for, for skin grafts as well. There's all kinds of really interesting biomedical things. But the other thing that's really I'm fascinated with right now is they discovered that algenic acid, if you do the right things to it and mix it with uh, different kinds of um, things like chitin, chitosan, and so forth, it can be made into a film or a plastic. And there's a very large effort right now, particularly in Europe, to try to figure out how to get rid of plastics and have something that's biodegradable and recyclable and comes from natural sources. And there's a very, very interesting effort right now to basically make plastics, plastic-like materials, plastic substitutes out of algenic acid. Fantastic. Yeah, so saran wrap yeah. from kelp. Right. Lining inside of tin cans that's now plastic can be made from kelp. Um, they've made little pouches uh, of of algenic acid that can hold water that they've been using in um, marathons. They can grab a pouch of this stuff, pop the pouch in. You can eat, drink, chew the whole thing. No waste. So there's, 
there's all kinds of interesting things coming out of that. That is the very other, cool. The other, there have been various chemicals from kelp as well. And there's a long and interesting history to that as well. Uh, the word kelp actually refers to in Scotland and Ireland in the 1500s, 1700s, kelp was, the, the seaweed was brought up on the beach and burned to then make a ash. And the ash was the source of soda ash, which was used in glass making and a bunch of other chemical processes in, in that period of time. It was a huge industry. I've read about that, and I thought yeah. that was interesting because soda ash is what uh, oyster hatcheries today use to mitigate ocean acidification. Uh, they essentially introduce that calcium carbonate, that soda ash, to buffer the water. So I thought that was a really interesting like a, link. Interesting back on that. So the word kelp actually is that Gaelic word for the ash, not the seaweed itself. Wow. Um, and subsequently, they discovered that kelp has a lot of iodine in it. And the iodine, when they burn this stuff, would condense on the inside of chimneys. And they actually, the discovery of iodine as an element came from the kelp, kelp industry. The Chinese started growing a huge amount of kelp in the 1950s to then use as a flavoring agent to prevent goiter. They didn't put iodine in their salt. They just gave everybody kelp powder. So it was a goiter preventative, um, a source of iodine. Right. So there's all kinds of things like that. It's been used extensively as a fertilizer uh, in lots of different parts of the world. Uh, it acts as a soil conditioner, has micronutrients, and has a bunch of benefits. Basically, uh, Helps in soil. In fact, if you go to places in Scotland, a lot of those rocky shorelines, there wasn't any soil. Any soil that's there now was hundreds of years worth of seaweed kelp being dragged up and composted. Wow. Yeah, I understand that many farmers in the U.S. are rediscovering kelp's properties as a fertilizer. People are are now rediscovering that. So that's the fertilizer, soil conditioner, there's a whole other set of, of uses for this stuff. So it's been around for a long time and people have used it for various things, but now we're discovering all these other uses for kelp. And I say uses in the sense of chemicals, uh, alginic acid kinds of things, uh, health benefits and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that, that's exploded. Very interesting. Um, and then I understand just in its capacity, as you said, growing in, in forests or beds, that it can also help to slow down uh, wave energy and storm surge and, and protect beaches from erosion as well. So the- that, Yeah. So these floating kelp beds, such as you would find in California and places like that, actually act as a, a natural breakwater. Mm-hmm. And, and, and stop so you would have less wave action on a beach. Um, yeah. And we know how important it sure. is to try to protect that, those beachfront yeah, properties. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, but the thing that, but the thing, oh, go I was going to say that is so impressive, but it sounds like you have more to add to the benefits. Well, the thing that's, that's becoming evident now is that we're facing 
widespread across the globe. Kelp, let me back up one. Kelp is found in every continent in temperate waters, not so much in the tropics, but in temperate waters, except for uh, Antarctica. So it's very widespread and we're losing it. There's a lot of concern right now that we're losing kelp in some areas much more dramatically than others, but we're losing the kelp. And that, I would have said five years ago, people wouldn't have been that upset about it or they would have said, so what? But what when you lose kelp, what we're finding now is that that kelp supports enormous number of fisheries. Um, and in many ways, and it's a very complex story, but basically the kelp provides habitat for a lot of fish. It provides the food for a lot of things like urchins and abalone. And so those fisheries really depend a whole lot more on kelp than anybody's ever realized. Yeah. And so it's, it's been a real eye opener in places like Northern California, where they've had a real huge loss of kelp in the northern, uh, say, from San Francisco up into southern Oregon, um, it the, the that has been catastrophic for those fisheries in that in that part of the world, and they didn't really kind of put this all together until they lost the kelp, and they went, "Oh my goodness!" So that's that's a whole fascinating story about how that happened. Yes, so um, that's exactly where I was leading. Actually, was uh, into. This crisis that uh, that we're experiencing, particularly here on the West Coast, and and how that came about, and what it looks like now, what kind of losses we're seeing, and the the consequences, and the change in biodiversity, including fisheries, but uh, how that works, how um, starting with a, a seaweed, essentially um, an algae, and going all the way up to important fisheries, uh, what that looks like. And I did want to uh, return just for a second to how fast it grows. I've heard some numbers thrown around uh, in terms of aquaculture, uh, something like six inches a day. Is that is that right? There are a couple of ways of looking at it. Um, yes, things like bull kelp, uh, the nereocystis, uh, that starts off as a little tiny microscopic plant in maybe uh, 50 to 100 feet of water. And then it grows to the surface and then makes a canopy, if you will. It can grow a foot a day. Oh. Easily. Wow. So it really okay. out outdoes even kudzu, eh? Yeah, it, it's right up there with, with kudzu. But the thing that the way that the scientists would put it is how many grams of carbon can it fix, mm. say, in a, in a, in a in an area? Mm -hmm. And the answer is it's in the neighborhood of one to two kilograms of carbon per year per meter squared, which if you compare that to alfalfa fields or sugarcane or tropical rainforests, it's as good, if not better than those systems. So its ability to fix carbon, to put carbon into biomass, to take carbon out of the water is, is huge. Mm -hmm. And that's what's known as blue carbon, right? Carbon sequestration that occurs in marine environments. Right. So let, let's diverge on the carbon sequestration maybe for a moment here. We'll put the <laughs> Northern California thing aside. The sequestration is a really interesting and of, I won't say controversial, but there's still a lot of people trying to figure out how it works. And that is 
can you can this all this carbon that gets fixed that turns into kelp plant where does it go does it get sequestered and sequestering usually people think about that carbon being tucked away if you will somewhere over people normally think over 100 years that it it doesn't just get recycled because and most seaweeds will just rot they'll get decomposed and the carbon goes right back into the atmosphere again. right so it doesn't really get sequestered for any length of time at all and so the debate is now how much kelp or in this particular case actually gets sequestered and, and put away into sediments or put away in some form that it doesn't just go back into the atmosphere right away mm-hmm. And there's been some studies done in Norway that they they were talking about uh, kelp can sequester as much as seagrasses and salt marshes and mangrove forests all together. Wow. Um, 11% of the productivity of kelp is sequestered in deep water. What this means is that you uh, are taking the, the, the seaweed and it will either float or little pieces of it will float out of deep water, sink to the bottom and get incorporated into, into deep water sediments where then it's sequestered. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of debate about how, how much is that. Um, I make the argument that if you were to take the kelp carbon, which then is used to feed little shrimp, or copepods, or things that are eaten by fish, and then the fish eat the copepods. And so this kelp carbon goes up the food web, and it ends up in a rockfish that lives 100 years. Does that count or not? But the interesting thing about it is, and this is, gets back to this food web business, they've looked at things like rockfish, and now they're doing salmon and some of these things. And you can, by using what they call stable isotopes, you can look at the uh, way the atoms are and those things, and you can tell where the carbon came from. So you can track the kelp carbon. A rockfish and salmon and these kind of things can be anywhere between 20 and maybe 75% kelp carbon. Now, they're not eating kelp directly, but they're eating something that ate something that ate something that then ate kelp. Wow. Does that make sense? So it goes up the food web. That's amazing. Uh, so you have not only these habitat implications of these things, you've got these what I call food web implications. What happens if you don't have, if half your food is kelp and there's no kelp, then what? Mm-hmm. And then how does it get sequestered? So the sequestration thing is, is, is an ongoing topic, but I, there's more and more people looking at it very carefully. Um, there's companies now that are beginning to look at using uh, in the agricultural business for land plants, they're selling carbon credits. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the commodity. I mean, people, farmers now can sell carbon credits to an airline company, for instance. Right. Can you get kelp, kelp uh, can kelp farms or kelp um, restoration be used for carbon credits? And that's an ongoing question that we're looking at right now. On the East Coast, I believe in New York gives kelp credits I mean, carbon credits for kelp farms. Wow! So you can sell your 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 carbon <laughs> carbon credits mm-hmm. in that market, and that's when the kelp is being entirely removed from uh, 
being harvested, essentially, mm -hmm. in aquaculture. So the idea is that you can have um, carbon credits, and places like New York are actually starting to think about and legislating that a kelp farm can get, can sell its carbon credits, which is pretty exciting stuff. There's a company in uh, Seattle right now that's looking carefully at these kelp farms and can they sell their carbon credits for this thing. So how much carbon comes out of the water, taken out of the water and put into something that's sequestered is a, is a commodity, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's that big a deal. Right. I know that uh, some local tribes have made significant in new income by selling carbon credits from their forests. So it could be a great source of income, uh, but it, that presumes that you can really nail down those numbers that you're talking about and really inclusively say, this is the amount of carbon sequestered. And I'm interested right. to hear that, uh, that that deep ocean sequestration and sequestration within uh, fisheries, for example, happens because I had always thought that it had to be removed entirely from the water column in order to consider it sequestered. But, but really, you're saying a significant amount is removed even when it stays in place in, in the habitat. Well, I think the argument is that it would get carried from the shore where it grows in the photic zone, if you will, where there's sunlight and so forth, and it drifts out into the deep water and then sinks into the, into the, into the deep water right. uh, and, it's, and, it's, uh, and then trapped in the, in the sediments at, at that point. Um, but those, those are numbers that are going to be interesting to try to figure out how, it, um, you know, how much that really is, happens. Um, the thing that I think is going to be interesting to watch with this is that carbon sequestration kind of has two aspects that I can think of. One is how long does it stay sequestered? And the second is where is it sequestered? And I think it's going to be kind of hard to compare terrestrial sequestration because though that carbon ends up in different places than say aquatic or, you know, marine, marine systems. So there's, there's some homework to be done. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. 
Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Let's hear a little bit more about what happened in Northern California all the way up to Oregon. <laughs> we, 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 keep, we keep circling around about this. So um, that was just back up a little bit. So that's a open, uh, open, fully exposed, uh, beautiful shoreline along there, uh, characterized by a lot of what we call floating kelp beds. The kelp beds, there's two species out here, macrocystis and nereocystis or bull kelp, both of which come to the surface and, and make a canopy, unlike most kelps, which are on the bottom. And in Northern California, there was all these kelp beds and there was also an abalone fishery and there was also an urchin fishery. And the abalone, they would harvest and, and sell for meat. And the urchin fishery was one in which the what you wanted were the gonads, the, the eggs, and would be sold. And it was a big deal. And also then you've got a lot of finfish fisheries as well. So in the fall of 2013, and, and this story, there's various parts of this story that I will say, there's the there's a story that's being told and there's, there's nuances to this. But basically in 2013, they had a, a, a heat wave the blob, and it got very warm. And it's not clear exactly the sequence of events here, but the result was that a lot of the kelp itself didn't doesn't do well at high temperatures, we know that, and, and died. At the same time, there was an outbreak of a sea star wasting disease, which is probably viral, and it killed most of the sea stars in that part of the world, actually all up and down the West Coast, it, it killed sea stars. Uh, but that was a particularly hard hit part of the world. There's one sea star called Pycnopodia or the sun star, which is very big. The thing will be like two or three feet across, many arms on them, and they eat everything in sight, including the urchins, and they love to eat urchins. So all of a sudden, you didn't have very much kelp, and all of a sudden you didn't have any sea stars. And here were the urchins. And the urchins went, whoa, this is great. I don't have anybody eating me. And they just took off. And they started eating whatever kelp was left. And so what it ended up turning into is what they call the urchin barrens, which is a fairly well-known phenomenon. It's usually cyclical kind of a thing. But basically, the urchins win. They eat all the kelp. They eat all the seaweed. They eat everything right down pretty much to the bare rock. Or there's a coralline algae that you can still exist. And the bottom will be co covered. I mean, just you can't even see the bottom for the urchins. And the problem is that once that occurs, usually it's very long lasting or even permanent, sort of an altered state. Any piece of kelp that sticks its head up immediately gets chomped. I mean, it's just kelp, kelp never has a chance. So a couple of things have happened here. One was that the urchin gonads were dependent upon them being fat and sassy, basically. And if they didn't have anything to eat, the gonads just disappeared. And urchins are really weird, it, or not weird, but the way they work is they can sit for years eating, eating really apparently nothing. So essentially, nothing essentially starving, right? They can sit, well, starve, they, and... But they're, they're, they're starved, but not starving. Uh, they don't die, they just sit there. Right. And again... But they're worthless as a fishery because mm -hmm. there's no gonads in them. Mm -hmm. 
the abalone actively eat kelp all the time. I mean, they just, or kelp detritus, pieces of kelp. And they pretty much all died off. So they were gone. And so now you've got this huge stretch of coast where there's no kelp, there's no abalone, there's lots of urchins. And what they've discovered is that some of the fin fish, juveniles that depend upon habitat in kelp beds are disappearing as well. There's no end in sight right now. And the losses are something upwards of of 95% in this area, right? It's just, yeah, I don't know about percentages, but basically that whole coastline has been been altered. The thing that's interesting is that it didn't extend that far up in Oregon. And you get into central and southern California, it didn't happen. It didn't happen the same way here in the state of Washington on the outer coast. So it was, I won't say localized, but it, it happened there. The scary thing, though, is that we've seen similar situations where the kelp gets too hot, particularly in places like Tasmania and southern Australia. And when it gets too warm, kelp doesn't do very well. And they, they, down there, they've had huge crashes in their fisheries that were associated with these kelp beds as well. So it's not unique to that situation in California. So there's a lot of work going on right now. How do you restore those kelp beds? Mm-hmm. And it's a not going to be an easy story um, in that you could go out and plant kelp and it won't make it because it just gets eaten. You can send divers out, and they've done this in some areas, basically to, and kill the urchins uh, with hoping to try to get a foothold of the, of the kelp growing again. That's incredibly labor-intensive and, and difficult and expensive to do. And the urchins recruit. They come back again. So that, that's not necessarily a fix. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, we're going to try to figure out how to reintroduce the pycnopodia. There's some indications that that sea star wasting disease is kind of over with. The pandemic is over with, and if you reintroduce the pycnopodia, they would start eating the urchins, which then would restore some of this balance. Mm -hmm. But, and here's the but, and this is where it gets, from an ecological standpoint, really interesting. That whole part of the coast was full of sea otters at one time that got basically all killed off by the by 1900 and they are the main other predator of urchins right they are the urchin predator and they are the abalone predator as well they love abalone they love urchins they love clams basically as well so then you've got this interesting dilemma of well you could reintroduce the otters which might bring back the kelp but then you might not have any urchin fishery or abalone fishery either. So that's really a, an interesting situation. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to really go back in deep time, so that's, that's you know, 150 years worth of, of sort of out of balance system with the otters. The last stellar sea cow was killed in the Aleutian Islands in the 1700s. The stellar sea cow was it was, it's extinct, a manatee that floated around. It, it was huge. They were like 20 feet long and ate kelp. Wow. On the West Coast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had a top kelp predator that's gone too. So I think the moral of this whole story is that these systems are 
not what they used to be, let's put it that way. And so how you manage these and, and the things that you do to try to restore some of these services that you want, such as fisheries, um, it's going to be a very difficult thing to do. And just to put in a further plug about food web effects, um, you mentioned that along with rockfish, they've looked at salmon, and of course they meet they eat many of the same uh, things that that are part of that food web. Uh, right. And of course, we know from recent developments that uh, our southern resident killer whales rely primarily on Chinook salmon as their source of food. So we can really say that uh, that this seemingly humble uh, algae really affects the well-being all the way up to uh, the much beloved and iconic orca of the of the Northwest. Yeah. I've been trying really hard to convince somebody to get some tissue from an orca and do this carbon isotope thing to figure out how much kelp carbon there is right. <laughs> in orca. Yeah. I, I don't think it'll be huge, but it'll be there. I, I'll, I'll put money on it. There, It's in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that yeah. makes perfect sense. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. And the thing that's amazing to me is that this has been in the last just maybe five years that people are just now beginning to put all these pieces together about the role of and the importance of and how these of kelp and how these things are all linked. Mm-hmm. There's been this cosmic aha of oh, it's pretty complicated. Everything's all connected <laughs> in, in in ways that we had never really thought about until fairly recently, or they were so sort of buried in the academic world that people didn't really get it. Right. We don't know what we have until we lose it. Is is really we don't know until, yep. story, yeah. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a it's a fascinating story, and, and I'm constantly now just in wonderment at the what I call the fire hose effect. I, I just every day wake up and there's more papers, there's more articles, there's more information coming out about all this stuff. Um, it's it, it's it's wonderful. I just an hour ago got off a seminar uh, by Katie Schoenrock in Ireland talking about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the beauties of sitting at home with Zoom is that you can zoom into these uh, seminars now. They're putting them all up online. But, you know, the information is just coming at us like crazy. And uh, again, putting all the pieces together has really been interesting and fun and also, I think, important. Uh, right now we can talk about restoration i mean what do we what do we do now uh if we're losing kelp which we are and um we're losing it in, in puget sound the bull kelp is, is really taking a hit in particularly in south puget sound. right i Over- just heard uh in a meeting last week that the department of natural resources conducted surveys in south puget sound to better understand current versus projected kelp populations. And while it's not yet finalized, initial results show dramatic decreases in density up to 80% in some areas. So it's become a a top priority indicator of the health of Puget Sound and the advancement of of restoration and conservation has, has really been recognized more recently as something that's, that's critical 
to to the health of this area as well. So I was uh, involved a little bit in, in that study, but we just got through working with the Northwest Straits Initiative to come up with a Puget Sound conservation and restoration plan for kelp. Mm-hmm. And it, it not just floating kelp, but all the 23 species of kelp that we have here. And it's a really interesting document that lays out the steps and the framework, if you will, about how you might want to do, try to do conservation it's it's the same old thing. Don't don't try not to lose it. Right, restoring is, is complicated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's a, a really interesting document. I'll go ahead and post that document to globaloceanhealth.org so that and any listeners Thank you. Uh, can access that. It was just released right. a couple of weeks ago, and and as you said, is really uh, the results of an impressive amount of work by some very impressive people. Yeah. So the, the restoration thing is going to be really interesting, and it, we're going to have to work at it. Um, I'm of the opinion there's been a lot of what, quote, restoration, unquote, where you basically go out and, and try to plant it and get it to grow again. And we tried this with field grass. We've done a little bit with kelp, and the results have been, I will say, mixed at best. Um, because often you don't know what killed the kelp in the first place. Right. And I'm a firm believer in that you really need to understand the biology of these plants and what, how they work, and then where what stressors it is that made them go away in the first place and correct that. Then you go after it. And, and I'll be willing to bet most times if you reduce the stressor, the kelp will take care of itself. If not, get out and start planting it again. And so there's um, this restoration effort. The first step is really getting a hold of the, the biology in a, in, a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. And then uh, learn by doing, right? And, uh... and then, then, you, then you learn by doing it. The thing that's a little scary to me is that the temperature business keeps coming up again and again yes. as an issue. Kelp is basically like cold water. Mm-hmm. And one of two things can, well, not one of two things, both things need to happen. One is you need to figure out how to s- slow down or stop global warming. <laughs> and uh, that that's just, and that's, just and a the, small the, order there yeah just a small order there but it's no joke i mean this is this is going to be one of the consequences of, of things warming up mm-hmm. uh, amongst many others yes and i uh, believe but, but, that uh we continue to see consecutively hotter sea surface temperatures we're, every year we're, we're, see, we're, we're seeing more and more and it's interesting there's two kinds of phenomena going here there's what i call a global warming which is just the average temperature goes up and up and up and the other is that we're seeing more and more of these blobs, the heat waves, mm-hmm. where you have a really hot water for maybe a couple of months or so. Mm-hmm. But that does the trick. That's that's just as deadly as, you know, um, having just a slow increase in the temperature. Yeah. The other approach. The other approach to this is, and and this is something I need. I think needs to be done uh, at the same time. Do you start to breed or select for kelp that can withstand those higher temperatures and then use those for restoration. Right. If you, if you can't totally fix or even maybe slow down, but can't totally fix that warming, can you make a plant that will withstand it? Yeah, the same. And that's been, that's being done in places like China for aquaculture purposes. It's technically very feasible. 
It, it right. Be. The same theory goes for many shellfish and corals that are affected by acidification and warming yeah. is you, you breed right, yeah. for that resilience. And often if right. they're exposed to it, they, they can become more resilient. It, but uh, that's certainly a line of research. It's unfortunate that we have to do that, that we have to change uh, them, change the change these foundation species yeah. to fit our new world rather than than keep our world the way that that they uh, grew up evolved in. But you're right; it's uh, it's much better to to have something than nothing, and that's one way to do it. And that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer is yes. You need to do both, but um, that, that's that's part of the solution there. Mm-hmm. And the ocean acidification business is interesting in that um, kelp itself isn't. In fact, it probably benefits from uh, ocean acidification. Um, more more way, carbon it, it dioxide, it right? More carbon dioxide. It, it seems to do okay with it. Um, the thing that that has been interesting watching now is using kelp to soak up the carbon dioxide, particularly in the proximity to say shellfish farms, where it can lower the amount of carbon dioxide in the water, raise the pH and make a little halo effect, if you will, around um, shellfish farms. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's been several efforts on the East Coast and one here uh, showing that 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 can be done if you grow the kelp right around. And it's not a large scale effect, but one that is significant around a floating shellfish farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, back in uh, 2011, when we had the Washington State Blue Room panel on ocean acidification, uh, our organization actually commissioned one of the very first studies uh, that was called Sweetening the Waters uh, around that idea of using kelp and other uh, photosynthesizing marine grasses and whatnot to uh to remove carbon dioxide and and create this kind of halo effect so it's been really fascinating to see how that field of research has exploded recently and to see just how much of an effect it can have you know we could project that possibly shellfish farmers uh decades down the line hopefully uh more rather than less um may have to grow aquaculture you know do seaweed aquaculture next to their shellfish aquaculture just to create an environment that is conducive to oysters. Right. Yep. And the interesting thing about that is that I've been asking people this question. The way that kelp grows is interesting. It basically grows from the bottom and the top of the plant just tatters off like a flag in the wind. Um, It gets, it gets tattered off and the little fragments become particles that float around in the water, but they're very nutritious. Mm-hmm. How much of that kelp carbon in those little fragments end up in moisture growing next to it? Right. You know, the food, because the fil- they're filter feeders and they're not that particular. I don't think about whether they're eating little pieces of kelp or whether they're eating a plankton no. particle. No, I wouldn't imagine yeah. so. Yeah. Well, the other the other part of this story, I want, I want to bring this in here because it's it's a it gets kind of down in the weeds, so to speak, about all this. Kelp biology is a little more complicated than you may think, in that the big plant that you see um, is only half the story. These big plants 
become reproductive and release little tiny microscopic spores that swim around in the water for a period of maybe a day, settle to the bottom, and these little spores germinate into tiny microscopic filamentous plants, totally unlike a big kelp plant. And these little microscopic plants grow for, we're not sure how long, and one of them, half of them are males and half of them are females. The female gives off a chemical that causes the male to make spermatia that then swim and are attracted to that same chemical, fertilize the egg. The egg then becomes the big plant again. So you have this obligate, you have to go through this little sexual microscopic phase. Hmm. And we talk about all these restoration, we talk about all these stressors and all this kind of stuff. And I keep saying, Folks, it's becoming more and more evident that the problem may not be with the big plant. The problem may be in one of these sexual cycles or where these gametophytes, what they call gametophytes, these little tiny plants grow. Right, where they're at their most vulnerable, could, I would assume. Could, could well be. Yeah. It could well be. And we know remarkably little about them. They know a lot about them in culture for aquaculture, but they don't know much at all about where they are in nature, how long they live, where do they live what chemicals or what processes might make it so they don't they don't work there's all this there's a whole little song and dance with the the uh, chemicals that cause the attractants and they're hydrocarbons i keep looking at going and no one to my knowledge has ever studied what the effects of different kinds of pollutants are on reproduction if you will Mm -hmm. So I guess what I wanted to say here is that we're, we're still kind of thinking about and, and very interested in the, in the half the story, but there's another half the story. Yeah, that's... That if, if for restoration in particular, permanent restoration, restoration that works and doesn't have to be reseeded every year, you want something that persists. Right. You have to understand that. You have to understand that, that microscopic part. And how unique is that form of reproduction uh, in photosynthesizers? Um. Well, I teach a course in life histories, what they call life histories are a big part of the deal. Um, a lot of algae have phases like that. Not all, but many do, where you have a, a big phase and a little phase, and, and, they're, and uh, others have two phases that look the same. They're similar to mosses and ferns. They, mosses and ferns do the same kind of a thing, mm. but it's an ancient but pretty well tried and true method of, of, of surviving. The fun thing about it is, when you think about it, that the big plant grows somewhere under certain sets of conditions, and when they get bad, wintertime or too hot in the summer or something, it makes spores that then go and make another phase that can survive that, and they go, they can switch back and forth between right. living in different kind of conditions. Yeah, that's very resilient. Um... Yeah, I always, I always say, kelp can't move. But they do get around. Mm-hmm. They they can they can do different things at different times in different places. Yes, and you have to understand that you have to get a handle on that for all this restoration and so forth to work. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense uh, why it's survived and and been a, a foundation species, as you say, uh, as well as a, a an engineer of environments. Um, you know, it's it's a re- it's a remarkable set of plants. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're, (laughs) 
they're they're remarkable. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and they're big enough. They're big enough. They're not a, they're not that unusual in in the algae world, but they're big enough that they they make a difference. Yes. Well, I think we can say from your history that uh, that you've had a bit of a love affair with kelp. Uh, so <laughs> you're you're well, a fan. Yeah. I played with red seaweeds for a long time, but that's a whole other story. Uh-huh. I, I grew nori for, for okay, a while. <laughs> but um, yeah, they're they're a fascinating group to to look at and to study. And it's it's from personally, it's been a delight to see this sort of explosion of interest and knowledge now that that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, as you know, our organization has been looking at delving into kelp restoration. And I was so impressed uh, with the number of people and organizations that are really passionate and really interested in in making this happen. It was very encouraging and exciting to see how much energy there is uh, out there around kelp restoration now, um, and that it's getting some real media coverage as well. Um, I just wanted to mention briefly that when it comes to marine heat waves, uh, we had an a excellent episode of Changing Waters where we spoke to a NOAA researcher, uh, Lori Whitcamp, and um, discussed the effects of food web changes from copepods all the way up to fisheries. So. That's something if you if our listeners wanted to pursue learning more about the effects of marine heat waves, particularly on uh, the West Coast here, uh, refer them to to that episode with I'm sorry, Lori Whitecamp. And um, finally, I wanted to ask, I know that in Puget Sound, there are problems uh, with additional acidification and oxygen depletion that are associated with nutrients with people using too much lawn fertilizer and poor water, poor stormwater management. Um, and I believe another benefit of kelp is that it can suck up nitrogen in the same way that it, that it sucks up carbon. But I wondered, is, is kelp affected by poor nutrient management as well? And is, is that something that people could, could participate in, be involved in to, to help uh, with conservation? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the whole nitrogen story is, is 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 utterly fascinating. If you want to get rid of the nitrogen out of the water, kelp will do it. But I tell you, the plant around here that that loves it is sea lettuce or olive is the Latin mm-hmm. name for it. And you've seen this on the beach. It's the green stuff that coats everything, and it 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 will take up nitrogen and grow like gangbusters, no questions asked. Um, how the nutrient business affects the kelp was a little more complicated. Um, what we're seeing, I think, is that if you're out in the water, that the nitrogen is taken up by plankton. You get plankton blooms. And the plankton blooms do two things to kelp that's not good. One, it cuts down the light. Mm-hmm. And the second is that all the nitrogen then is sucked up and in, into the out of the water and is in the body of, if you will, the plankton. So there's nothing available for the kelp itself. Mm-hmm. So it's really an odd situation where in the face of plenty, you may not actually have enough, or at least on a seasonal basis, you know, during the summertime when you get these big plankton blooms, there's no nitrogen in the water to speak of. Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes there are these very harmful or toxic blooms, right? Uh, just as a yeah, that that per se doesn't hurt the kelp. The kelp, right? But it's a it's but a it bad thing, though. <laughs> But 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 they, but they cut they cut out a lot of light. They do sting. I mean, yeah, you know, sure. Or bioluminescence or, or whatever. So it's it's a complicated story, and basically has all kinds of different ramifications to when you put too much nitrogen in a system like this. So uh, good nitrogen management could be something that people could do to help. And and what other actions can ordinary people do to to help assist with conservation uh, and or potentially restoration? You know, it's hard to put my finger on it, but I'm fairly convinced that within Puget Sound, at least, um, one of the things that we've, we're not handling extraordinarily well is stormwater runoff. Mm -hmm. And I grew seaweed here, the nori, and the thing that was utterly decimating to that seaweed was the first big rainfall in September on Labor Day when all the parking lots that had accumulated oils and whatever all summer got washed into Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. It killed our seaweed down in Dornail. Wow. And then it would disappear. Like a week later, this stuff would get flushed out of the system. But that initial off-the-parking-lot stormwater runoff was the worst stuff I'd ever seen. Yeah, just chock full of pollutants of every kind. Yeah, and 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 who knows what it was? I mean, I, you you couldn't you know, I could you make a shopping list a mile long of what was in that stuff, but whatever it was, it sure didn't do the red seaweed any good. And I suspect it's true of mm -hmm. most things in the in Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. So the stormwater runoff is is and controlling that and, and and treating it and thinking about how you build things and impervious surfaces and all this to me is a, is a huge issue here, mm -hmm. given how much urbanization is, is happening within Puget Sound now. Mm -hmm. And there are programs that people can get involved in to to help with rain gardens and stormwater management mm -hmm. measures, right? Yep, all that, all that. Okay, and then obviously uh, doing their bit for global warming, I would say, right? Well, I mean, your carbon footprint is, is the name of the game. Mm -hmm. Yep, how do you lower your carbon footprint? And, and think really, really seriously about that. I mean, the kelp is just one tiny facet of, of the issues that we're going to have with global warming. Um, talk about carbon sequestration. I mean, it's 100 degrees in the Arctic and all that permafrost is melting and how much, I mean, they talk about how much methane is coming out of that situation now. Yeah, terrifying. Yeah, it is. It's utterly terrifying. Great. Um, it's Gloom and doom here. <laughs> but, so do, you know, like I say, everybody, everybody needs to do their part. I'm, I'm in the opinion that the other thing is that the more people know about kelp, the more people know about the environments they live in, become educated, then they're going to say, hey, this is really pretty interesting or necessary or critical for our fisheries, whatever. But they'll then come up with their own way of dealing with it. But the first step is to awareness. Mm -hmm. Right. I know you work with the Northwest Straits Foundation, and um, they help uh, oversee the marine resource committees uh, up in the right. islands and they do citizen surveys of kelp beds. Yeah. So people go out in uh, kayaks and survey what's there. And I think that's just a fantastic uh, collusion or collision of, uh, 
of citizens who care about kelp and and really important uh, science that that lets us know just what's out there and what's changing year to year. So now we're working with that group, and this is an interesting topic. We're just getting started with looking on, it's called actions to impacts. How do you take that information that they're getting and turn that into some kind of conservation and restoration actions? Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not just, it's one thing to go out and measure kelp in a kayak. That's fun. That's great. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to make a difference with that knowledge? Yep. How, How can you go to your kind of commissioners, to your legislators, to your planners, you know, and say, hey, you know, this is something that's important. Yes, important to me and important to all of us. And and fisheries uh, represents hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, billions of dollars worldwide. It feeds half the the world, much of their their protein, and uh, provides tens of thousands of jobs in Washington State alone. Um, So... You can make that link to fisheries, as is as is so clear through that uh, carbon chain uh, research right. that you're talking about. That makes a a pretty comprehensive argument for for why policymakers should care. So, um, yep. And of course, so that that's that that's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to get the word out. And, and connect these dots, mm-hmm. you know, that, that everything like this is connected. Yep. Uh-huh. And there's always uh, the option to, to write op-eds in your local uh, newspaper. And um, there's a lot of actions that, that people can take if they become. Uh, yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you make, a, how do you make a difference with what your, your behavior is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. But I have to say, uh, when it comes to the surveys that that more knowledge is always better uh, of course learning how to use that knowledge in, in myriad ways is important but but just having it and documenting uh, what's out there is is important in and of itself um, so. well I, I think it's incredibly important that these folks one are are learning about their their place their home. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important thing, I think, uh, that you understand where you live and how it works. Yeah. And it's and, and have fun doing that. Um, a sense of place is the first step in in, in sort of making a difference. Mm-hmm. Great. If you if you never get out on the beach, if you never see a kelp bed, it comes, it goes. Who cares? Until you can't buy any fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, um, I think we should wrap up there, uh, but thank you so much for your time. It's been just incredibly illuminating. I thought that I knew a fair amount, uh, but you have definitely schooled me today and hopefully uh, schooled everyone else in a, in a great way. We'll have a quiz on a kelp life history. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, All right. Thanks. Well, thank you. Okay. Um, and just keep up the amazing work. And I look forward to, um, to checking back with you and, and hopefully continuing to, uh, to work with you to see just how we can be engaged in, in conservation and restoration. So thank you. Take care.